Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, friends. I'm so excited to tell you about this wonderful product that I've recently discovered. Companies offer to send me products for free to try it out, and I'm always a little resistant because I don't want to take things that I don't need or want. But when Canuda reached out to me, I was intrigued because they were offering me a pillow that had been researched and designed ergonomically by no other than a physical therapist. Woohoo! It has been tested and proven for over 10 years and already loved by more than 2 million customers worldwide. Well, you can add me to that 2 million. I love it. It is the first ever pillow to incorporate physical therapy techniques like cranial sacral, where it relieves neck pain and induces a proper sleep position. You can lie on your back or side. I usually end up on my side and I still wake up feeling great because this quality memory foam supports my skull and the cervical spine. So you don't wake up with those cricks in your neck. I, like so many of you, have struggled to find that perfect pillow that really supports me in different positions. And this is it. You've got to try it. If you've tried a range of products in the past and nothing has seemed to work, try Canuda. And we have a discount. So go to the show notes to get a coupon and get that discount at CanudaUSA.com. I'm in love with this pillow and I can't wait for you to try it. Good movement, and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns, so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Wednesday Q&A, where you all ask the questions and we answer. I am joined by my fearless and wonderful friend, physical therapist, and let's see in your teacher extraordinaire, Kristen Williams. Hey, Laura. We, every time you say it, we both just kind of giggle. I know. We best smile because it's like, I just want to do like, I want to do all the fanfare that you oh. so deserve. And it never gets old. I don't know why. That's No. Of- okay. I hope it doesn't get old for all of you listening. <laughs> All right. We have a question coming in from Stuart Breer Rawlings. Can you talk about the loss of thoracic mobility as we age and the loss of balance? I teach seniors and it seems like balance comes and goes. So kind of two parts there, thoracic mobility and balance. You want to start off? Yeah. um, He's absolutely right. We do see this with people as they age. I think people as a rule, we know that people become less active and they become more sedentary. Posture starts to go, gravity starts to take its effect. And that, that thoracic spine especially gets 
limited in mobility. I see it in my parents. I see it in my older patients where there becomes almost a disconnect and inability or unawareness of how to move there anymore. And then that, that can affect balance, I think, because of center of gravity changes. But I think a big thing with balance in the elderly is visions getting worse. That's going to affect your balance. Um, sometimes there are sensation losses in the feet if there are other comorbidities, but just a lack of always wearing shoes, you know, um, a, a, a lack of mobility in the feet. So you have like this perfect storm of stuff that's occurring as we age that can affect mobility, center of gravity, feedback from the floor, feedback from our eyes to affect balance, to affect posture. And then there's a fear factor too of not wanting to fall. So they kind of start shuffling. It's I've, I've been watching this progression in my own mom, just this rounded posture because that tends to make them feel more comfortable reaching out. Unfortunately, that limits the thoracic mobility. So, and then we also, just as we age, we start losing, I mean, our collagen ages are, are, we lose fluidity in our joints, in our skin, in our tissues. And so things just start to naturally stiffen. uh, stiffen. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I, I agree. We can become more crystallized, right? Like a good crystal. And so, but we are a crystal matrix, a liquid crystal matrix at our essence. So I totally agree what I've seen in the research as well. And it, it is all of those things, posture, it, all the stuff that you were doing earlier continues and becomes even more brain mapped and more imbalanced. So if you're flexed over, you lose the ability to rotate very well because you need that neutral spine for sure to be able to, to rotate around the axis of it. And so you can, you know, I, you see the little old ladies, they just, or men, they kind of move as a unit. They turn their whole body and they don't have that segregated movement of the, the individual segments of the spine, which is really necessary. Like I want to be able to turn and still have my pelvis stays forward instead of turning my whole body. Because when you do that, to Kristen's point, you're also losing some of your proprioception. You're losing some of your being able to control your center while things are happening. Limbs are moving, ribs are moving. And when you just move as a big block, you actually really do limit that kind of expressiveness. That's what our limbs are for. They're really to express and to um, engage us in the world around us. And so I think people get stiffer, they move less, and then they become more likely to fall. And if they fall or lose their balance, they become more scared, so they don't move as much. And it's like this really bad, vicious cycle. And, you know, the studies have shown that one fall will set people back tremendously. And a lot of it is mental. Because, of course, they're worried about breaking their bones. You know, their bones are more fragile and brittle as you get older. And so those, those fears become very real, and they really become a deterrent. So I think to that point, we continue to work all the stuff we would work on, which is posture, work on thoracic extension and rotation, work on core stability so that we can move and move our limbs and really reach and stay not so rounded over because that also helps our proprioception, our feeling of being able to control ourselves in space and not be contracted 
literally not only in our body, but in our movement patterns. So the more we can move in big global ways, functional ways, the better. And, you know, when I work with seniors, I'll say, tell, tell me what your day, day's like and how your house is set up. I'm always like, you know, and what do we do? We put them on a, one floor because my goodness, after a while, we don't want to climb stairs. Why don't we want to climb stairs? <laughs> That's probably one of the greatest things we could do. So what do we do? We go to a retirement home where it's totally one floor, toilets elevated, you got rails all around, you get Velcro on your sneaker, you just become like little babies again, <laughs> you know, like we're baby-proofing the house as we age. And that, that external environment also influences how we move and how we feel about movement. Like when people say, oh, I, I don't, you know, my mom lives in a house that has a basement. It has a second floor. She doesn't go on the second floor much. And everyone's like, oh, she really needs to downsize and get it. And I'm like, you know what? That Those stairs, like she's climbing up and down those stairs multiple times. She's bringing groceries. She's 79. That, those are going to help her. And because those stairs will help her stay strong, and she's going to be less likely to fall down them because she's going to have kept going and kept that strength. So I think there's so many elements. It's it's a mental, it, it is really a mental outlook. Like as we age, things, some things are going to be more challenging, but they don't have to be. Like we don't have to make them like we're just going to sit in our lazy boy with an, that has a motorized, <laughs> you know, elevation and lift us up and then you know, shuffle over to the kitchen. And we don't have to do that. Um, but that's why we need to do this stuff now in our younger and middle age years so that we're setting ourselves up for a nice, uh, graceful transition into our, you know, older part of our life where we're still very active and, you know, still have good posture and stuff. That's what I was talking with my specialty module mentor group um, just uh, just last night. And I was talking about it's going to be interesting to see long-term studies of what this year and a half going on two years of shutdown ish. I've seen the change in my mom, especially because we we've taken out that social aspect, that going out and going out to dinner and going out and seeing people. So suddenly to your point, they're in the house all the time and they're not moving around as much because I mean, for a while you weren't going to the grocery or my dad would do it, you know, for my mom. So that caging in effect of this shutdown that, you know, the, the pandemic, I think is going to be a uh, we're going to see stark changes in that population of just a decline because of not being able to move as well, uh, which is why I'm so thankful for our online platform that has allowed people to still move at home. My mom does online stuff, some of our um, chair work and whatnot. So, but it's still not the same as getting out and just moving. Movement is medicine, getting out, moving, being active. We have to move because it's not only great going and being social and being and, and staying fit and, and feeling good in our body, but it helps our immunity. It helps our breathing. Like if those people that are closing off, they're not breathing as well their immunity is not going to be as great because if you if your pulmonary system is affected it it impact you know all these systems affect each other your digestion the way you feel you know sluggish and it just one begets the other so movement it really is the antidote for all of it so keep moving people please all right i have a question from our friend deborah lang 
She says, hi, Kristen. I have a question about my anterior knee pain during certain yoga poses and streams. I have had a chronic bilateral knee pain for about three years now. It has improved a lot with daily lit yoga and resulting postural improvements. I had completely lame glute muscles and I think a slight anterior tilt. I also used to have pain down the lateral side of my left hip and quad and a terribly sore Achilles tendon on the same leg, but both have virtually disappeared. I stand for work and walk or ride my bike to commute. I also walk, road ride, and mountain bike ride for exercise and leisure. Like I said, I have improved a lot, but every once in a while, my knees will still have pain anteriorly. I am wondering why I can get this pain when I'm in bent knee down dog and dolphin, and when I'm walking back from plank to down dog or happy squat. I can also feel twingy in plank. Any thoughts? Thank you so much for all you do. Why don't you start with this one? Because I know we've had a similar question about this before. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot. She gave us so much great information, so I don't even really have to see her to know. So, first of all, you you gave us your background, that lateral hip pain into your Achilles. That all tells us some stuff that you were probably hanging into that lateral hip and that your glutes, as you said, were not functioning as well. So that's some years of setting up dysfunctional movement or suboptimal movement. But you've gotten a lot of that more organized, it sounds like. Your glutes are working better. You don't have that lateral seam pain. But now you can sometimes feel it in the anterior knee. You also told me what you're doing is a lot of sagittal plane movement, you know, repetitive you know, so when, when, when you started saying all those things, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. So walking, biking, mountain biking, bike, all that is like a repetitive sag- sagittal plane, meaning like just walking forward and back would be sagittal. So that walking and, re- and biking, that isn't to say you can't do that. But what I would say is make sure that you're bringing all of the stuff we teach you and in lit into that. So can you lift up in the bowl of the pelvis when you're biking and not kind of sit and let that femur be driven into the knee over and over and over again. So the knee is really there just to, to, to move and allow movement to occur. We don't want to be putting pressure in it as you bend the knee. We want it just to be kind of, you know, the femur's just gliding on top of the tibia via the knee. So in in those sagittal plane motions, you're more likely to have that drive of the the femur into the knee. So A, be really careful with that. Also check your bike seat. I I would say like that sounds, we just had another wonderful graduate who had been having knee pain from biking. And we both gave him the advice, like go and get your seat checked out because if it's a little bit low or a little too far back, or a little too far, like any small, and I'm talking like it could be a quarter of an inch because that quarter of an inch can drive into your knee. So A, I would get your bike checked and make sure since you are spending a lot of time biking. And then really continue to work on the reset. And if you're feeling things like going into plank, your knee is extended, your hip is extended, and that might be pulling a lot on your front, on the front line. And so that you're feeling it in your knee because you you haven't yet gotten that ability to have your hip extended or really holding your, it's really holding your pelvis neutral and not let it go into your knee. Because if you're tight in your front hip, which because you're flexing all the time in walking and running, and then you 
open that up, like you iron it out in plank, but you still have the tightness there, it is always expressed in that anterior knee. So when anybody says my in plank, my knee hurts, and then especially if they pick up one foot, that's that they can't get away from it because it's all in that one knee. So I would say in your plank, feel free to lower your knees and work on plank with really paying attention to the position of your pelvis. You're going to almost feel like your posterior tilting to get it neutral because my guess is you're probably still an anterior tilt if you're in plank and you're feeling it in your knee. Coming into happy squat, uh, just make sure that you go back more into the glutes and put your fingers in your hip creases and really get that femur going posterior. So it's the absolute opposite. Anterior, it goes into the knee. Posterior gliding goes into the bowl of the pelvis toward your glute muscle. So you'll feel that glute getting um, stretched. It's getting eccentrically loaded. Those are all movements that with time and with precision will improve and take that out of the anterior knee. So anterior knee pain, it doesn't surprise me that you might feel a little bit of that with all the other kind of positional and postural background, but it sounds like you've changed a lot and just know that will go away. Um, But to make sure you mix it up, I'm not saying don't mountain bike, but maybe, you know, do a yoga class and then try a shorter mountain biking. Do you have any other thoughts to that? Um, I love everything you said. And then I would also, because of the positions she's having it also in dolphin and like the bent knee down dog, I'm wondering what's happening at her, at, at her ankles too. You know, like mm-hmm. it, does she not have that ankle dorsiflexion? So is she going, is it driving more into the knee because of a dysfunction below as well? Because we know about there, she knew she had it up above. So maybe she's gotten that figured out a little better, but to your point, it still might be a slight, and t- almost like the bike when you said it can be a quarter inch. The same thing is true of the pelvis and the ankle. It can be 10 degrees. It can be the littlest change. It can almost be the thought of moving a certain way is all you need to change the feeling in other areas. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. If if you just bring your mind's eye to it and this two degree change can have dramatic effects. So I would take a look at, at her ankle dorsiflexion. You know, it, it, how is she moving there? Her, her gastro, her calf tightness, her Achilles. She said she was having Achilles issues. You know, is she still maybe a little bit limited in her ankles? So look above, look below. Um, and then yes, to your point, that's a lot of sagittal, which I love it. I love that she walks and rides to work and that's fabulous. But then and she's doing lit yoga, which I think has helped, but there might need to be a bit more of a balancing in her activity level. Mm-hmm. And yeah, once she said the ankle dorsiflexion, that explains the happy squat as well, because you're going way back. And if your heels can't drop down, that calcaneus can't be loaded as the tibia moves back, that's the dorsiflexion. Then then the tibia moves forward into the knee. So it's coming from below. So in dolphin or down dog, I would just get way up on the balls of your feet and bend the knees so that you're taking a little bit of that pressure off if you don't have that dorsiflexion. And then you could you could do the same thing in happy squat that you do where you put your fingers in your hip creases. You can also put them right around the cuff, the ankle and help a little bit of that ankle dorsiflexion. Great question. All right, next one. This is a fun one. I don't even know how to answer it, but we can answer it together. Alia Michaela, how do you go about being a strong boss lady with your employees? (laughs) (laughs) You get to start here, boss lady. (laughs) I know. I guess I don't. (laughs) That's probably it. I, I always think in life in general, whether it's work, 
as a mother, as, you know, just trying to be a good human, I think the best thing to do is lead by example and just, you know, surround yourself with people who are doing the same thing. And that's really, I, I, that's what I think I do in, in work is that I just, I try and, and lead. I, I'm not going to ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't unless they're specifically like Greg knows how to operate a camera in a way I don't, you know, but in terms of work ethic, in terms of, you know, I'm not sitting back eating bonbons on the couch. I work really hard and I don't like tell people to do that. I just think people now, I'm also, you know, the people that are in my circle, I'm attracted to ambitious, hardworking people. So I think, um, and and I think they're attracted to me and want to work with me. So I, I think it's, I haven't had, there's, I haven't really had any issues in the, in the workplace ever where I've had to kind of be like strong boss lady. I'm just, I'm just who I am. And I, I also look at it like we're a team. I really don't look at it like I'm a boss, if that makes sense. And I think that again, again, being a team member is very important. So I'm not asking anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do. And just like with my kids, I try to be empathetic and yeah, that's, that's how I think I do it. No, I, and I would agree that is how you do it. And, you know, I, I feel that that is true. You have really surrounded yourself with a good team, you know, and you've been, you, uh, so we do feel like a team and, um, and then you do lead by example in that people don't realize how hard you work until they're on the other side (laughs) on your team. It's, I, it's, it's shocking how hard you work. And so that inspires us to work hard as well. And, on my side of having been a clinic director in many different instances, you know, that, that empathy, that humility too, the ability mm-hmm. to say, you know what, I was wrong here and let, let's talk about it. You know, not always being right, being aware that what, what you are intending to put out there may not be what's being perceived and being open to listening because I'm, I can pick up on people's body language. I can pick up on tone really well. And I've never been one to just sweep it under the rug and be like, all right, you and me in, in the, you know, and that's like, oh, shit. I mean, everyone's like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, well, yeah, it's hard in that 30 minute conversation, but afterwards it's like a shell breaking open. And those people end up being my dearest and my, like my homies, because they know, all right, Kristen's got my back. I want to have her back. And so I think that being a good leader is being a communicator and being empathetic um, and being humble, admitting when you're wrong, asking for the best from someone um, and also delivering as best you can to them. People, it's very reciprocal. I mean, the lit team is hugely reciprocal. And I have found teams that I've led, even my sequencing lab calls, they end up being big collaborations. Like, come on, let's all work together. And, you know, that's a, and that's, that's, you do the same thing on our team. It's, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a symbiosis going on versus. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's great to think about it. Like with any team, whether you're heading it or not is like, really, like you said, be humble. Like I recognize what I'm really good at. And then there's many things I'm not. And that, so I think as a, as a boss, as a leader, you, you don't have to play a role like you know it all because then nobody's going to really respect that as much. 
uh, because then you have to like to hold that line and to be that person all the time means you're not going to admit when you're wrong, means you're not going to admit when you need help. Most of the time I ask everybody's, I want to know everybody else's opinion and I trust that so much versus like having my own vision and being like, it's got to be this way. And then I know like when I do have strong opinions and I feel like in my gut, like this is the right thing to do or choice to make or amount, amount of money to spend or whatever it is, I'm comfortable with that. But that most of my decisions, it's a team decision, you know, it's, and it's, it is truly, I think that's collaboration and collaboration is powerful. It is potent. You know, that's what, that's what doesn't drag down energy. Try one things that drag down energy is like one person, be it the leader or somebody else on the team, who's always, you know, trying to kind of manhandle things or, or take credit for things, whatever it is. It's like collaboration. It really feels beautiful. And, um, and then it is sustainable and it's renewable. And it just like, I feel like we do so much and we just keep coming to the table with even more energy, you know? which is hard when you're like, we are all, most of us are virtual, whether it's the pandemic or not. And, and yet we still come to the table and we have, you know, we're always like, what can we do now to be like amazing? You know? So yeah, get good people on your team. That's, that's no matter what team that is in life, get good people on it. I love that question. That was not a PT question per se. So all right. Um, I have one more question for us today. So this one has been asked before, but I do think it's relevant because I still think it's so freaking confusing. Miriam Tabrez asks, should our scapulas be neutral or protracted in handstand? And I think that's probably maybe a little, conf- maybe, maybe she knows, but I think it's confusing because some people have learned from people um, in a workshop or their own teachers or on Instagram, like to protract the scapula and then lift into handstand. And that is not the way we teach it. In most of the entries that we're doing, besides like jumping and piking into it, we are coming from like a standing L position where your scapula are neutral. And that is a very powerful place to it's literally like just walking onto a cart, you know, that's 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 sitting on the tray of your ribs. And it's not like it's not going to stay on your ribs as you lift up, but to have that anchor from the beginning, because the hardest thing is the lift off and that the first, I would say zero to 90 degrees are really the hardest. And that's where you want to feel the security of the scapula. Then once your legs come up, the orientation of your arms is now at above 90 degrees, the shoulder flexion. And so naturally, your scapula, as you're going up, they will naturally follow the rib cage and come into protraction. You don't even really have to think about it, actually, especially when you set them up in that beautiful neutral position to begin with. So once you're actually in a handstand, they are protracted because your shoulders are in full flexion. So personally, I think that people that practice the protraction from the beginning— it takes a lot longer to get a handstand. They don't have as much stability. This is what I've seen. And then it's like, it's a weird kind of you're protracting and you're still not in night. You're, you're still below the above 90 degrees type thing. So for me, I have done it both ways, by the way. So the way I learn is I learn on myself 
And I learn from the understanding of biomechanics and I learn like, well, this is actually the most functionally sound and strong way to do it. So that's the way I then teach it. So I've actually tried it the other way because I remember people trying to teach me that and it felt so frustrating because you're also at the end range kind of of your scapula upper rotation. So you're like, I don't have any room to go here. So if you can't lift off, you kind of feel crowded up there. Versus if you lean into the sternum and you then you kind of hook the scapula on the back, the legs come up and then you just slide, the, arm, the scapula just slides right up and you've got that room to move. That Those are my thoughts on it. What do you think? I mean, that very last thing you saw me, I pointed at you like, yep. Uh, when you start in that protracted position, you're at an end range and there's no wiggle room. So what I love about, and I always do that, I kind of set the scapula in neutral. I always have said this before, right away, that feeling of hooking the scapula onto the ribs in neutral, I can feel the connection between my brain and my scapula. Like those muscles go, dink, hello, there we are. And then I don't even think about it once I'm going up. My mind is no longer on my scapula. I'm thinking about where is my pelvis? You know, like that's what matters. And then yes, you're in neutral. So you have this room to upwardly rotate and protract as you come up into that flexion. You're not even thinking about it. And then you still have wiggle room when you're up. Those little micro adjustments that you start to learn when your hips are in the air. So to be honest, I'm like you. I don't even think about it. It happens naturally. There's all this room to glide up. And it's, in my opinion, more upward rotation than true protraction. So I think people do get that because your arms are up in the air. People are like, now what's really happening? You know, it's more, you know, upward, you know, elevation. And uh, so, yeah, starting in neutral just really gives you such a good footprint to then move. The pelvis can move around that solid base of the scapula. Normally it's the other way around. You know, the scapula is moving around the solid base of the pelvis where it is in space. But when you're on your hands, it's just the opposite. So um, just like we want a stable hip when we're walking forward, we want a stable, neutral shoulder girdle that can then just naturally the body move around it. And that's why, I mean, it sounds, we all, and I always feel like somebody's going to slap me one day when I'm like, and just kind of pretend like you're walking, like shift on there, like you would be walking. But it, once you've done it enough, it actually does feel like that. Yeah. There's not a lot of energy expended to your point, which is so great at that motor mapping is so solid. You just feel the scapula and then you don't even, I like, yeah, I don't ever really have to think about the scapula. I'm just thinking about, Oh, let me get the pelvis up. Yep. <laughs> totally. And then it's like, whoop, not far enough. Let me try. Yeah, it yep. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then the little micro adjustments happen, but yeah. 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 So there's your answer. Hope that was clear. As always, thank you guys. This was a wonderful set of questions and it's always a pleasure. If you want to write us questions, write me at on Instagram. Direct messages are usually the best because my our email boxes are so packed with stuff. So Laura.hyman and KB Williams99, as you can write Kristen. We love getting your questions and really appreciate you listening. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And as always, we are pulling for you.